Hi, I'm Gail. And hi, I'm Catherine. And today we're excited to be talking with Dr. Sarah Zeff Geber from Santa Rosa, California, who's nationally known expert in the non-financial side of retirement planning. In 2011, she founded her company, Life Encore, to educate and coach boomers in how to approach retirement in a positive and creative way. Now, she's made solo agers her personal crusade, hence the title of her 2018 book, Essential Retirement Planning for Solo Agers, a Retirement and Aging Roadmap for Single and Childless Adults. And here it is. Mm -hmm. The Wall Street Journal named this book as one of 2018 best books on aging well. Also in 2018, PBS named Sarah an influencer in aging. And she's an advisor to Nexus Insights, a think tank and incubator for new concepts in senior living and the future of aging. So welcome, Sarah, to Women Over Aging, and we're delighted to have you as an advocate today. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Thanks. Let's begin with your um, basic philosophy about life and aging well. What, what are the essential elements as you see it? Well, first and foremost, I, to me, aging is a positive thing. And uh, wherever I see the any indication of positive aging, whether it's a positive aging movement or a positive aging, um, new positive aging ideas, I just resonate with the whole concept of positive. Because that's it. To me, every new chapter in life is exciting. And I don't think that our later chapters of life should be any less exciting for us personally um, than uh, any other period of life. So it's kind of, I, I encourage everyone to think of it as an adventure or a journey and something to uh, grasp onto with both hands and kind of figure out what you want to do with it. I think in your uh, book, I recall you you saying that leaving our careers gives us the bonus years. Is that, did I re remember that correctly? Yeah, it does. Um, I think Ken Dykwald was the first to use that expression, the bonus years. And of course, you know, previous generations, for the most part, just simply didn't live this long. So they didn't have those bonus years. Men who were the primary breadwinners back in um, the last century and before that, typically stopped working or retired, as it became called after the 50s, um, when they were about 60 or 65. And statistics tell us that they only live two or three years beyond that. So there, until the, at least the, the latter part of the last century, there wasn't any emphasis on retirement and what to do with retirement. And now all of a sudden, we have a generation of people who are going to live many decades beyond that 65 point. In fact, the uh, uh, women especially, who still live longer than men typically, um, have a better than a 50% chance of living to 85 if they reach the age of 65 and men not far behind that. So these are these are exciting kind of bonus years and we get to figure it out. Yeah, Before you turned your focus to solo agers, you were a highly successful uh, leadership and organizational consultant and you founded Life Encore. It's a, a coaching practice. But why has um, solo agers become your personal crusade? 
Well, I'll tell you the story of the, the whole inception or birth of solo aging for me, although I, I didn't quite call it that yet. Um, I was having a glass of wine with a friend of mine in one of those cute little wine bars in Palo Alto, California. And she was telling me about how much she'd been doing for her mother who lived on the East Coast. She'd been flying back and forth several times during the past year. She had to uh, get her mother moved out of her home and into um, a continuing care retirement community. And then she had to sell her house and she had to outfit the new apartment and just went on and on. She was practically spending her life on an airplane. And I said, Sandy, you and I don't have kids. Who's going to do that for us? And that really became the, that was a starting point and became kind of the uh, trajectory that I've been on ever since then. And I guess that was about 2013. So it's almost been 10 years that I've per been pursuing the solo aging um, passion, really. It's, it's a passion for me. And in, in your book, you said that solo agers are living without a safety net. And um, and without a script. So yes. tell us who, who are solo agers and is this a small or large cohort? Mm. What are we talking about here? Sure. Well, initially I conceived of it as being people who didn't have children. And honestly, that was a big enough cohort in itself. I discovered that baby boomers had this had either chosen or by chance were childless in twice the numbers than all previous generations. Mm -hmm. For all previous generations, the childlessness rate, for whatever reason, has been about 10%. And that, that's kind of typically the rate of infertility. So you had a few people who adopted and a few people who um, chose not to have kids, but there was also this, this huge area of infertility, but that was about it, 10%. So with the baby boomers, that almost doubled. It, it rose to about 19 and a half percent. And it has varied a little bit ever since then that Gen Xers uh, had a few more kids, Gen, the millennials are not having kids at about the same rate as um, baby boomers. But if you think back to the late 60s and early 70s, it's really easy to see why and how that happened. We had tremendous pressure uh, toward um, women's rights. Uh, we didn't quite pass the ERA and the, the, um, uh, the amendment, but the, the pressure that was on societies and Congress and everyone involved to treat women equally was huge. By the mid seventies, it was tremendous. So what it did is it opened a lot of doors for women that had never been opened before to colleges and universities, to careers, to corporations and our hiring. And just like now, it, we have tremendous, um, we've advanced tremendously in our diversity, equity and inclusion efforts. If you roll back to the mid seventies, that's exactly what was happening with regard to women's rights. There was huge pressure to do that. And most schools and places of business adopted an equal opportunity uh, perspective for their hiring. So that was um, that was really the, the the change point. And you asked me a question. It was a two part question, and I don't remember the second part now. 
Well, I'm not sure I do either. Um, <laughs> no, I was curious about how how the size of the cohort. And oh, when you yes. and I talked before, you said it's like it's in the millions. Yes. I mean, it's. Yeah, it is. It's uh, what what that 19.4 percent amounts to is about well, it was about 16 million. I think it's probably down to um, high 14 or 15s now because, of course, we've lost some people out of the cohort. Um, but it's it's a very large cohort. And you I, I remember the other part. You asked me about the definition of mm -hmm. solo ager. And again, that has morphed a bit over the last 10 years. Initially, it was just people who didn't have children. But so many people have come to me and said, wait a minute, you can't limit it to just people who don't have kids. Because there are so many people out there who do have kids, but their, their kids live six, eight, nine thousand miles away. Um, and unfortunately, some of some families are estranged from one another and kids they can't count on their kids for one reason or another to support them. So when you pile on all of that, um, plus people who are single, um, either through divorce or death um, or never, never having married, um, those are solo agers too. And a lot of people, even those whose kids do live fairly nearby, uh, I or um, can easily get to them, they still, in many instances, think of themselves as solo agers because they don't have a partner. Mm -hmm. So my thinking, really, when push comes to shove, I think it's people who don't have kids that are the most in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. Because my observation is, even if your kids live far away, my, like my friend Sandy, who was flying across the country, they rush in when the need is there. Mm -hmm. But when you don't have kids at all, there's nobody rushing in. So what are some of the solutions that you have for these people? What do you, What is it that you talk about and can suggest? And I know some of it's in your book. And so, so fill us in a little bit on some of that. Sure. Um, it begins and ends with our social network and doing good planning with regard to our legal future, our financial future, making sure that you're living a life that can support itself throughout your life. Um, that takes the help usually of a financial advisor. And I encourage everybody to see a financial advisor at least once if they don't want to invest their money with one or uh, don't want to get involved with one in the long run, at least let them run their spreadsheet to see if the way your income and outflow is can sustain you for the rest of your life. And then it's also important um, to make sure that you have your estate plan done. No matter how simple or complicated it might be, you need to have a will and you need to have, you need to give powers of attorney to someone that you trust, both for healthcare and for finances. So those, that's a, a big job. It's kind of job one for, for solo agers is to make sure they're doing that. And a lot of that is dependent on developing and maintaining your social network, because who are the people you're going to put on that paperwork? Um, have you cultivated a good relationship with nieces or nephews or much younger siblings? Those are the people that generally are good candidates to be the um, uh, 
to be on your, to, to have your um, power of attorney, uh, to be your kind of second, <laughs> second line of defense when it, when and if you can't speak for yourself, you need someone that will. And hospitals need to know that. Uh, most, I think most health systems now insist on people filing advanced directives for healthcare um, in their uh, medical records. So I know here in California, we, we certainly have to do that. What is so the, those uh, are the, no, go ahead. No, so those are the kind of, those are the tasks for solo agers. Not that they aren't important tasks for everyone. I mean, really, everything I prescribe for solo agers can be also a good prescription for anyone, whether they have kids, whether they live nearby or not. So if you if you compound being a solar solo ager with with uh, a lack of finances, with, um, you know, you've worked hard all your life, you've you've barely made it, you've you've gone from hand to mouth some a lot of people do and so so do you have any suggestions for those kinds of solo agers yeah i do um it's solo agers of course run the entire gamut mm -hmm. from the very poor to the very wealthy right. so and there's a huge group of people that kind of fall through the cracks of not of making a little too much money or having a little too much money for any kind of government assistance, but not enough to move into a fancy senior living um, situation. So that again, that social network is really critical. I'm a very big fan of sharing housing of co-housing, of building a, a network where you live as much as you possibly can. And I, I also, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of aging in place. I think that's been way blown out of proportion as being realistic for most people. Um, everybody seems to think it is. I shouldn't say everybody. People are starting to, to shoot holes in that whole concept. But um, for solo agers especially, Aging in place, if it means aging in your isolated suburban home somewhere on a cul-de-sac without even any transportation nearby, um, I think that's just a huge mistake. So I encourage solo agers to uh, band together in a sense, because there is strength in numbers. There are opportunities to build community in apartment homes and condominiums. Um, I have become a very big fan of mobile home parks because they're a less expensive way to have your own space, but also be very, very close to your neighbors. Yes. People in mobile home parks often have built wonderful communities. I've visited a number of them and they well, most mobile home parks have some kind of of community house or community center. Um, maybe that's where their mailboxes are. That's where people who don't have washers and dryers in their units go and, and do their wash. So there's so many opportunities way beyond living in the suburbs that allow people to mix and mingle with one another and really develop solid friendships. And that's what's important is developing those and maintaining those relationships later in life. And it's so much easier if those people live nearby. Mm -hmm. 
I hear a lot of women of our age saying, oh, you know, I have a great soul, a great social network. My friend and I from the next state over meet for lunch twice a month. Well, you know, there's going to come a day when that's not going to be so easy to jump in the car and drive for an hour and a half to meet your friend for lunch. So it's, (laughs) it's a fallacy in a lot of ways. And it's, it's part of the kind of what I call the Peter Pan thinking of especially the baby boom generation. You know, we're always going to be able to drive. We're always going to be able to do for ourselves whatever we need. Um, It's just people, I think, need to um, pull their head out of the sand in that regard and really face the facts of aging. It can still be a wonderful journey, even though we need to plan for a time when we're not so mobile. Maybe we're not so verbal. Maybe we're not a a number of things that we might be today. So it's to me, it's all in the planning. And that hence, that's the name of my book is essential, essential retirement planning. You know, I have several friends who are a bit older than I am, and they've um, some have already moved into retirement communities, seeing mm-hmm. retirement. And I, I just was with an, another friend who is looking at them, and I happened to join her in her a, a, a visit. And one of the, it seems like such a major leap from living in your own home with lots of space and your books and your everything around you to. Um, 1300 square feet and <laughs> yeah and uh and so i'm wondering what do you what do you just say you know get over it and get on with it or <laughs> i kind of do yeah <laughs> um you know i i face the same thing you you two probably do also someday i'm going to give up this home um for a lot of people it becomes a, um, a a successive act. They they downsize not just once, but they have a series of downsizings. You know, move out of this single family home with the stairs to move into a condo. Great, that's a good first step. And once you're used to living in a condo, that's less square feet than you had. Uh, maybe the next step is moving into a senior living community. So some some people do it in steps, and some people just do it all at once. Yeah, just rip the right, just rip the band-aid off. But baby boomers have been so acquisitive. You know, we just have so much stuff. And when you look around and, and really evaluate, do you need all this stuff? And if you have kids, do your kids even want it? Mm-hmm. I hit one of my favorite articles in um, Next Avenue, which I'm sure you're familiar with um, the PBS um, kind of an e-zine that has wonderful, wonderful articles um, almost on a daily basis. Anyway, a few years ago, um, one of my friends that writes for them wrote wrote a, a blog post called your children don't want your old brown furniture (laughs) (laughs) i thought oh my god this is so perfect because most of the time they don't they're just they don't and especially this this kind of newest generation that's coming of age i don't even know if they have a name yet Uh, they don't want anything they want they're real minimalists Mm -hmm. so I don't know. It's different for everybody. You know, some people go the Marie Kondo 
route and downsize using her methods. Um, mm -hmm. Other people, and you know, there's going to be plenty of people who are going to uh, make their transition out of this world with a house full of stuff that their kids or someone has to sort through. But especially when you don't have kids that are going to do that, you know, I, my, my husband and I ask ourselves, what are we saving this stuff for? So we, we try not to be terribly acquisitive because we're just hyper aware that that time will come. So, mm -hmm. so Sarah, could you uh, tell us uh, about uh, some of the, the highlights in your book? How, sure. how is it organized? What are some of the major things you cover? Well, my book is organized in four sections, really. I devote uh, one section, the first section, to kind of my own an analysis of what adult children do for their aging parents. Because in a very real sense, those are the things that we have to figure out for ourselves. We can't do those. We can't rely on kids to do those things for us. So and I want to make sure I'm telling you the truth. So I'm looking back at my own book. Um, so I, that's called preparing for the future. And then I have a whole second section devoted to just enjoying life and all of the things that really are required of us to at this stage of life to enjoy it to the fullest. And one of those things is being adaptable and flexible because there will be changes. There will be changes in our health. There will be changes in the world and there'll be <laughs> changes in technology, which seem to come every day. Um, and we have to adapt to those if we're gonna be fully functioning citizens and continue to be that. And then a very large section of my book is devoted to where to live. Because I think that's one of the toughest questions that solo agers need to sort out for themselves. What's going to be the healthiest place for you to spend whatever the last decade or two of your life is? And um, so I, I, I think I have done a pretty good job of talking about many of the, or if not most of the options that are out there. I spend a lot of time talking about senior living and all the different divisions I find that most people today that haven't looked into this at all think that there's only one, one senior living um, frame framework out there and it, it's a skilled nursing facility and often a nasty one that, they're, that they saw their grandmother die in. Yeah, exactly. And people just don't realize that all the different flavors of senior living that are out there um, something I don't hit on too strongly in the book, but I think is very important, and you mentioned people that don't have a lot of money, is to, there is government subsidized senior living, and it's not awful. It's, it's nice. They're lovely apartments, and they have, there are programs uh, like PACE and some others around the country that are designed to get people into very very good looking senior living apartments and condominiums. And so if you do determine that you're going to be um, not able to pay for the kind of, of assistance you might need or just have people around you, I encourage people to get on those lists early because those lists for that housing have um, at least a two or three year waiting list in most states. So explore it. And that's the other thing that people I find are very reluctant to do 
is get out and explore. Like you said you did, Catherine, when you went with a friend and you saw a senior living community with her. Um, Get out and do that. These senior living communities are of all different kinds of of, um, definitions. There's assisted living and there's memory care and there's independent living and there's continuing care communities where you move in as an independent and as you need more care, it's available to you. And then there are the skilled nursing facilities. And I think most of us would try, want to try and avoid having to spend much time in a skilled nursing facility. But to do that, you may have to spend time in some other kind of senior living where you can get some of the help that you need. And often for seniors, um, for older adults, the help they need is more just um, mobility issues. It's not medical. Mm-hmm. may need help um, just, yeah, getting from one place to another. So, so there's that whole section. And then finally, I spend um, the fourth section talking about what are you going to do when you're really in the last stages of life? Many of us will live into our 90s and even 100s. And so that means we need to face some end of life choices and how we want to receive care in those years. Because yeah, we can read the isolated story of, you know, and a, uh, a 95 year old running 10Ks once a month. But People need to realize that those are the exceptions, not the rule, and not something to measure yourself against. So those are the those are the different sections of the book, and then it's divided into a lot of different chapters. Uh, I think you have like 24 chapters. <laughs> the other thing that I really appreciate about your book is that you have um, like worksheets at the, mm-hmm. at the end of most of the chapters. So it's pause and really think through what this chapter is about and and you know, do some of that planning along the way. So I, I found that really helpful. Yeah, the other thing I think we don't, um, that's become really become apparent to me is that if we imagine we're moving to a retirement community of some type, there's often a three to five year waiting list. You don't just call up one day and say, I'm ready to move in. And so yeah. I find it kind of challenging to be trying to think that far ahead in terms of, well, where would I want to live? Do I want to live near family? Do I want to live in the mountains of wonderful environment? You know, exactly. those, those um, choice, those are major choices. They are. And for, for everybody listening to this, that who is considering senior living, I think that Catherine's absolutely right. Do get out there. And just go visit some. You visit all of them that you can. I, I bet just out of my own curiosity, I've visited about 25 of them now, just within my area of California. I want to see. I want to see how they differ one from another. I want to see what they offer. I want to see how comfortable they'd feel. Um, my husband and I will move into some kind of, of continuing care community, I suspect, before we're 80. Um, so that's a, that's a bunch of years off still for us. But um, I, I also kind of keep track of the senior living industry to see where it's going because it's in a state of flux itself right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, just get out there and look. Some of them have long waiting lists, others don't. And it depends on what kind, it depends on your community. It depends on what kind of unit you're looking for. Often they're the smaller units, which are many solo agers want, 
Uh, the smaller units don't have the kind of waiting lists that the larger ones do. Baby boomers, of course, want those big units. So now they're building more and more that are 1,500 square feet, 1,800 square feet, three bedrooms. Yeah, I was going to so, say, I want three bedrooms. <laughs> exactly. What am I going to do for an office? <laughs> Many and, of these uh, senior facilities, I understand, require uh, large deposits. You know about that? Yes, I do. Um, yes, many of the life plan communities, also also known as continuing care communities, but they're starting to diverge a little bit. Um, most of them do require an initial deposit of hundreds of thousands of dollars. A lot of people simply sell their home and put that money toward their life plan community. Although, some of them are going to only a monthly fee. Now that monthly fee is high. If they don't have a buy-in, which is what you're talking about, Gail, if they don't have a buy-in, then the monthly fee is higher. So I figured out in, in one case um, of, a, of a particular community that I looked at in San Diego, we within something like six or seven years, we would have made up for that buy-in just with the amount we were paying by the month. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's sometimes what is a parent immediately doesn't really hold up in the long run. Mm -hmm. So to say, well, we're going to save, you know, 500, 600, $800,000 if we just pay by the month as we go. And then, you know, maybe we'll die in three or four years and it won't matter. But if we do live another 10 years or so, we will be paying more than if we paid that initial deposit. So be careful about that and really analyze it, get your financial advisor involved and, and really take a look at the long, the long term of these things. Mm -hmm. They are very expensive. The industry is, is working hard to develop some what they call middle market alternatives. And I think some of those middle market alternatives may come in the form of what are now known as active adult communities. They used to be called 55 plus. Now they're active adult. There's lots of them all over the country. And if they can find a way to bring some care options into these active adult communities, that may be the wave of the future. I, I just don't know. I'm, it's fascinating to me, and I track that industry as closely as I <clears throat> as I can because um, I, I I want to be able to talk about good options for the whole for the whole range of. Yeah income or wealth levels of people that are solo agers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So you're part of this Nexus uh, Insights, the Nexus Insights, the think tank. Are these mm -hmm. the kinds of issues that you and your colleagues grapple with? Or are there other kinds of things that you look at as well? No, they absolutely are. We're, we're looking at new concepts in caregiving and aging and senior living. So some of the people that are uh, some of my fellow fellows at Nexus Insights have great expertise in senior living. Others have greater expertise in the whole caregiving spectrum. Some are medical professionals. Others are more in the um, 
uh, in the business arena. Mm. So we have quite a quite a range of us, but that's what we're doing is we're looking at new concepts. And what next for you? Continue well, doing what you're doing? You have some new <laughs> ventures in mind? Yeah, no, I'm going to continue what I'm doing. I just love it. Um, you know, I, I write, write a regular post for Forbes.com um, on retirement and aging. Um, and I, I speak at a lot of senior living events. I speak at their conferences. I also speak for the American Society on Aging. Mm -hmm. I'm actually going to be the guest editor for a, um, an issue that's coming out next July that's going to focus entirely on solo aging. I just couldn't be more thrilled about that. Um, ASA decided that it was the time was right and we're going to devote a whole issue to it. And I'm it, it's a year out. It's going to be July of 2023. So I'm, I'm excited about that. That's one of the things that's on my plate. Um, I speak at a lot of marketing events for senior living communities because I am a big believer in senior living for those that are able to afford it. And of course, it, the cost of senior living varies hugely from one part of the U.S. to, to another. Huge. Um, you know, my husband and I talk about whether we're going to be able to afford to do it in California because the, the price of those is, is much higher. Um, back east, they're... Um, land is cheaper and certainly in the Midwest land is cheaper. Um, and so they can afford to offer these at a, at a, a lower rate. Yeah, come to the Midwest. Oh. <laughs> I don't know if I can let go of being an hour from the ocean, <laughs> but yeah, that's, there's lots more opportunity in other parts of the country. I, I have given some talks where people have really pushed back and most of I do a lot of talks in California and people say, well, I can't afford to grow old and blah, blah, blah. I said, you know what? There is life outside of California. There's even life outside of the Bay Area and there's life outside of the U.S. I encourage a lot of people to look very seriously at moving out of the U.S. You Especially can retire solo ages. Well, yes. I guess not especially solo agers, but everyone who is looking at the next decade or two of their life and going, I don't know how I'm going to afford this. You can live on your social security in Costa Rica, in Panama, um, in parts of Mexico. Uh, there is so much opportunity. And I also encourage people to start that if they're really seriously thinking about it, do it now. Don't wait. Do it now. You're never you're not getting younger. <laughs> So make that move. Do it with friends. You know, if you have that opportunity. Yeah. Anything else before we close? This has been really informative. I appreciate That's it so bad. much. Yes. Oh, gosh, I think you guys have you did your homework and have, have uh, led me to cover uh, pretty much all of the bases that I can think of. Um, maybe the one thing I haven't hit on quite as heavily as I usually do is to tell people to, to talk, just start talking to your friends about this, mm -hmm. start do stuff with your friends. I mean, if you, if you're uneasy about developing relationships, if you're estranged from your family and you don't have nieces and nephews around, gosh, one of the people on my advanced directive is the adult son of a friend of mine. You know, I don't have my own kids, but I have some friends who have wonderful kids and I've known them all their lives. 
So they are candidates too. And the other thing is uh, when you do this, or if you've already done it, make sure that you don't just fill in those lines and then not talk to the people whose names you put down. They need to know what it is you want later in life. They need to know before they get that call from the hospital or whatever it is that you've broken your hip. Um, They need to know that they're they're, they're on the front lines for you. So that's something people also forget to do a lot yeah. or yeah. get right. down have to those denial. difficult conversations. <laughs> yeah. Good advice. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. And um, we'll um, look forward to more, more books from you. And, and I'm glad you mentioned Forbes.com because I want to make sure that people know about, about um, that yeah. avenue as well. I think we met virtually through ASA. Very likely, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I'm pretty active in ASA. Mm -hmm. So again, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Catherine and Gail. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Sarah.